All right, let's take out our Bibles. We're going to take out our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we look at verses 11 through 14. Today we're bringing to a completion the longest sentence in the Bible. It's a sentence that started back in verse 3, and we've learned a lot. This is a one-packed sentence. But in this, we've learned how to rely upon the blessings of God. We've seen God's tremendous and amazing grace that He's poured out in our lives through our adoption into His family, through our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And then this week, we're going to learn about that inheritance that we've been mentioning here and there. In chapter 1 and verse 11 of the book of Ephesians, it says, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. I read an article recently that was talking about inheritances. And it said that about 68% of millennials figure that they're going to get an inheritance. But the article also went on to point out that it looks like about 40% of millennials are actually going to get an inheritance. So it sounds like about 28% of the people are going to be sorely disappointed when it looks toward inheritance time. I went on to read farther into this article and it talked about what the very wealthy are doing with their money. And it was kind of interesting. I found that Bill and Melinda Gates plan on giving most of theirs away. In fact, they've got it set up that their their kids, I think they have three kids if I remember right, I'm not sure, but um, their kids are going to get $10 million apiece, and then all the rest of it goes out to philanthropic things, trying to provide medical services in third world countries and different things to just kind of improve the, the living here on planet Earth. And that's a lot of money. As of the time of the writing of the article, which is a little bit dated, they had $89 billion at their disposal. And so they're going to $10 million to each kid. That ought to give them a good start. That's one of the things that was really interesting to hear their comments. Because they said, well, I don't think that it's really good to give kids a lot of money. So we're just going to give them $10 million apiece. <laughs> so uh, Warren Buffett was even a little bit, he was a little bit different. He, he, he is worth about $77 billion, And he's going to give his, each of his three children $2 billion dollars. He said, because that's enough that they can do whatever they want, but it's not enough that they can do nothing. I was like, are you kidding me? I could do nothing for ten lifetimes on two billion dollars. But so, so their grasp of numbers is a whole different game than I'm playing in. But it was interesting to look at these uh, people that were talking about taking just, you know, not giving it all to their family, not leave it all to inheritance, but what spread that in inheritance out over so many things. One guy did it in his lifetime. Chuck Feeney was 86 at the time of the writing of this article, and this article is about three years old. He started out with $8 billion, and at the time of the writing of the article, he was down to $2 million. So he'd given away already within his lifetime a lot of it. And you know how much he's leaving for his children? Zero. So he's not leaving them anything. They need to do it on their own. They need to, they need to make their own way. Now, he kind of, I'm sure, set them up during his lifetime, but he wasn't leaving any, anything to them in the end. But, you know, the inheritance, that's what I want to talk to you about here this morning, because that's what this passage in Ephesians is about as we get to this point, is the inheritance. And unlike the millennials, who 28% of them are going to be very disappointed, you know how many Christians are going to be disappointed in their inheritance? 
Zero. The same amount Feeney's leaving to his kids. <laughs> right? Nobody is going to be disappointed. And that's what this is focusing on at this point is look at all that God has ahead for us. He's been focusing on the grace of God through this whole thing and the goodness of God and how He's, he's adopted us into His family and it's according to His will. It's not because we're anything superior or great. It's just according to His will and His purposes. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be this in His family. And He has adopted us and He has redeemed us, forgiving us of our sins. And all that pointed to a glorious, a glorious future where we get to experience this tremendous inheritance that God has laid out for us. Now when you think about it, we've talked about some very wealthy people. We've talked about Bill and Melinda Gates, 89,000 people. Warren Buffett, 70, or $89 billion. Warren Buffett, uh, $77 billion. This other guy... The distant third to compare to those guys, but still $8 billion. You know what? That's nothing compared. we we got the God of the universe. we got the One who made everything that is in the world. we have the One that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as they say. And so we have this tremendous inheritance that we get to experience at the hand of God. And that's that's what this part of the passage is about. This last part of the sentence is focused on this inheritance that we have in Christ. Now, as we look through these few verses, I want us to also notice that there's three different experiences that accompany this inheritance that we have. The first experience, and I'm not really going to go through them in the order that they appear in the text. I'm actually going to take the middle one first and then focus back to the beginning and then toward the end. And I'm just, what I'm doing is I'm just putting it in a, a kind of a, in, to my mind anyway, a logical sequence. What you have to have first, second, third <laughs> is how it works. Uh, so it's a little bit different than the order in the passage. But the first experience that accompanies this inheritance is the experience of salvation. You know what? Salvation is, is intricately linked to this inheritance. In fact, uh, if you think about it, uh, without salvation, there is no inheritance. And at the same time, our salvation is, is the inheritance. Right? Because it's the completion of that salvation. We talked a couple weeks ago about redemption, and we recognized how redemption is something that we currently own, but at the same time, something that we look forward to. Because the Bible uses redemption in both the past, that Christ accomplished our redemption, the present, that we receive redemption, the forgiveness of sins now, it's something we possess, but there's also this time when we're finally in God's presence and where we're looking forward to, the Bible says, the day of the redemption of our bodies. And so our salvation that we have, we have it now, but the fulfillment or the fullness of it comes later on. And so uh, that's the same, you know, that's that whole idea with salvation. Is that you don't you don't have any inheritance without the salvation that is provided for by Christ, and at the same time that salvation is the inheritance. That's the fulfillment of that salvation when we get to finally be in the presence of God, and and then everything is awesome and everything is wonderful. Well, in this passage that we're dealing with here, he starts out in verse twelve in dealing with salvation, or you might say you might. You could go back to verse 11 and say verse 11 is kind of giving us salvation from God's perspective where He sees across all of time. 12 is our perspective. And so in verse 12, He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, notice, notice what, he's, what he's saying here. He's saying, uh, he talks about these people that were the first to hope in Christ. And, and the word hope in this situation, he's, he's using it synonymously with faith. You know, we always talk about being saved by faith. This word hope is being used at this moment exactly the same as faith is. He says, "These are, we who were the first, and I think who he's referring to there is the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians. Right? Because the Gospel went first to the Jews, and then it went to the Gentiles. And so if you look at this whole, from verse 12 through 14, that's kind of what he's saying. Is He's saying, look, we, the Jewish believers among us, we were the first to hope in Christ because the Gospel came to us first. And then that happened to the praise of His glory. He says, but then after that, later you believed. So you see, he says, we hoped in Christ. You believed in Christ. They mean the same thing in this context. He's saying, after that, you believed in Christ. And when you get to all the way to the end of verse 14, he says, to the same outcome, to the praise of His glory. And so he's saying, look, we Jewish people that, that, that put our faith in Christ, that hope first came to hope in Him, it was to the praise of His glory. And then the Word went to you. And you heard the Word. And you believed the Word. And you received the same salvation. And to what end? To the praise of His glory. And so that... Uh, this whole passage, part of the passage right here, is dealing with salvation. And he's explaining, not because they need to know how it happened, because they know how it happened. He's writing to people that are already saved, have already experienced this salvation, and are looking forward to the fullness of it that they get in the future. And he, and he just kind of outlines exactly what had to happen. What is it that had to happen for you to experience the salvation of God? It's plain and simple. He says in this passage that you heard the word of truth and you believed it. Um, he actually has one more word in there. Gospel. And what is the Gospel? The Gospel is the fact that we fell short because of our sins, so Jesus Christ died in our place to, to pay for our sin. And then He rose again from the dead, conquering death so that we can put our faith and trust in Him. We receive that eternal life through the power of His resurrection. And so, he's just kind of outlining it. He says, look, this is how you experienced your salvation. You heard the Word of Truth, the Gospel. You believed in it. Or you believed, it doesn't say you believed in it. You believed in Him, speaking of Jesus Christ. You believed in Him and you were, at that moment, you were sealed. So in this, it's kind of cool. Because in this passage, the past, the present, and the future are all coming together in one. Right? Because... We were, it tells us we were chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined in Christ. But at the moment that we believe in Him, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, looking forward to the inheritance, the fulfillment of this salvation in the future. And so all of these things come together all in this idea of looking forward to this inheritance or all in the idea of this salvation. You know what? The Bible makes this abundantly clear in other places as well. I think of Romans. In the book of Romans in chapter 10, it says, but what does it say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And he makes that a little bit more clearer a couple of verses later in verse 13, where he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then at that point in that, in that chapter, he recognizes there's a problem that needs to be overcome. In verse 14, he says, how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? You see, he's just told them how we get saved. We get saved by believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth, Jesus, in other words, inviting Him in as our Savior, calling upon the Lord, and you're saved. But there's a problem. And the problem is, how then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Because the final conclusion in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of, through the word of Christ. You see, it's a, it's a totally simple formula. We see the same thing in Romans that we see in Ephesians right here. He says, this is what happens. You hear the word of truth. You have to, you have to hear it. You have to know. You can't believe it if you don't know what it is. So you have to hear it. And once you heard it, you believed. And so he just outlines for us basically salvation. And you know what? That's what when we think about our inheritance and looking forward to all that God has for us, which the Apostle in other places tells us it's beyond what we can even fathom. Right? I remember hearing a joke one time about somebody trying to take their gold with them into heaven and they get to the pearly gates and all that stuff and, and uh, they find the gold on them and they say, oh, and, and they say, well, they just take it and say, oh, pave, more pavement, you know, because <laughs> the streets are paved with it there. In other words, the things that are the most valuable here are nothing compared to what's, what's in store for us in heaven. We can't even fathom what we have. It all starts at this one point in salvation. If we don't put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we don't hear the message of the Gospel that we needed a Savior because of our sin, that He died for us, rose again from the dead, and if I trust in Him, if we don't put our faith in Him, we don't have this inheritance. This inheritance is only experienced through the experience of salvation. But then not only our second experience is one of security. It's one of security. And that's really what, if you look at the bulk of this passage, that's, I think, the bulk of the message that he's trying to get through to these people in, in the church in Ephesus. He's trying to show them that all the greatness that they have in God, all these wonderful, this wonderful grace that is poured into their life through their salvation, <clears throat> that it's theirs. That they can, they can be secure in that. They can be confident in that. And um, they can really, I guess, trust in that. You know, Peter says kind of a similar thing in First Peter chapter one, verses three and four. He says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven." For you. You realize this inheritance that you have lying ahead of you because of your faith in Jesus Christ isn't even something you have to maintain or hold on to. It is being, Peter tells us, kept in heaven for you. It's undefiled, it's unfading, it's going nowhere, it is secure. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us at this point in the book of Ephesians is that it is, it is secure. 
In fact, it's partly this security that makes us return back to God in praise as we exalt His grace that is so freely given to us. Well, we're going to see a couple different things. First of all, the proof of this security. Let's, uh, let's focus on that. Through the passage, there are many different ways that we see that God is just emphasizing how secure our inheritance is in Christ. Um, when we start out right at the very beginning of verse 11, it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him we have obtained. Notice it's, it's past tense here. He says we, we already have it. Now obviously we don't have it in the sense that we're not up there experiencing it. We don't even know what all it's going to contain. We just know it's going to be super awesome. But He's speaking about it as if we do already have it as if we are already there experiencing it. And it's not the only time that he does this. In the next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, he does the same thing. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what he does in that passage? It's an amazing passage. I remember the first time I heard about this passage, a pastor shared it with me back shortly after I was saved back in 1985. And he was talking about it, about that passage with me, and I'm like, how does that, how is that? It says that he is, because it's in the past tense, he's already done this. He has raised us up with Christ, and he has seated us in the heavenly places, like we're already there. But you know what? We're not already there. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. But we are there, he says. You know, I think that what he's doing here is that he's just he's just talking about it like it's all it's so sure that it's already happened. There's this cannot not happen. Right? It's it's going to happen. It's that sure. Like John MacArthur put it this way. He said their dwelling eternally with the Lord was just as certain as if they were already in heaven. And so when he talks about this inheritance, he's not saying, look, maybe someday you'll have this inheritance. You know what? If you continue to do good, if you hold true, if you... None of that. He says, you've already got it. It's already yours. You're already there. It's so sure. And so the language here is proof of this inheritance that we have. But then not only the not only that, but then all the other words that we see in there too, it says that having been predestined, and we talked before about that was what that was in an earlier verse that he has marked out beforehand. Uh, this is according to um, to his will. In fact that's what he goes into next, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so it's not really about your will. Your will steps in line and conforms to God's will <clears throat> when that Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. But all these things are taking place according to God's will, according to God's purposes, and these things are not going to be over, overturned or, or thwarted. And so we see the proof of this inheritance being secure and sure for us. He says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now, uh, he also talks about in verse 13, it says that we were at the moment when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. It says you were sealed. You were sealed. This is more proof of 
the security that we're sealed in him. Now, a seal, what that's talking about is, is documents were often sealed. It's kind of like, you know, if you have to have something notarized, you go down and a, and a notary public puts a stamp on it that this has been witnessed, that this is official, that this is authentic. That's the same thing. Back then, they would, they would take some wax and put it on there and then they'd press their ring into it and the document carried the authority of the person whose ring it was. So if it was a king, it had the authority of the king. It had the authenticity of as being from the king. And so it's sealed. And so that seal shows authenticity. It shows ownership. And he says, look, that's exactly what you have. You, at the moment you put your faith in Christ, God stamped His image on you. God sealed you. You're secure. You're there. And not only is there proof of this security, but there's also an individual involved. There's, there's the person of security. And the person of security is that Holy Spirit. Because He tells us <clears throat> at that point, it says we were sealed. What were we sealed with? We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you look back in different passages, like I think of like Peter at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon everybody and they're like, what, what in the world is going on here? He pointed back to a passage in Joel and said, look, this is what it is. When God promised that in the latter times He was going to pour out His Spirit upon us, this is what this was. And so this promised Holy Spirit becoming fulfilled in this experience of our salvation. in And it's... It just shows the security that at the moment that we trust in Christ, we are secure in Him. You know, I remember one time studying doctrine and theology when I was in college, and they were dealing with the security of the believer, um, eternal security. Once you've put your faith in Christ and received that salvation, are you secure or can you lose that? And you know what was one of the arguments that really impacted me at the time was that at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and indwells you. And so the author of that theology book went on to make this point that you were saved by a supernatural work of the Spirit within you that was accomplished accomplished by the Holy Spirit, not by you. And it would take no less to make you unsaved again. In other words, the Holy Spirit's got to leave. The Holy Spirit's got to unindwell you in order for you to lose that salvation. He says that's just not happening. Jesus talked about other places, about the strong man of the house. The Holy Spirit is the strong man of your house. And He says in order for that to, the house to be overtaken... The strong man has to be defeated and cast out. Satan is no match for the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying that we are sealed by that Holy Spirit. You know, Romans speaks with some clarity on this as well in chapter 8. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Right, So the Holy Spirit is not something that gets added to you later when you hit some pinnacle of Christianity or, or some super star point of faith. Or The Holy Spirit is something that at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He comes in and dwells you. And at that moment, you're sealed. You're secure. You know, when you think about it, the security in this passage is astounding. 
because we're sealed from the very moment we put our faith in Christ. We're secure. But we already talked about the security that we had that's been there since the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. We don't need to stress about whether or not we're saved or not. If you're believing in Christ, if you're trusting in Him, you're there. And you're secure. Just like I'm part of my parents' family and my kids are part of my family, there's no way to undo that. We're part of God's family. And we're secure in that. Another image that He gives us is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And this passage is actually within the context of sexual immorality. And he's saying, look, you should not be involved in sexual immorality. That's a, that's a horrific thing to take some, a gift of God and take it outside of the arena that God established it for, which is the covenant of marriage. And, he's, and in doing that, he says, look, the reason you shouldn't do that is because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you're actually using the temple of the Holy Spirit to sin if you participate in this, in this sin. But you see, the interesting thing is, he doesn't say, look, your body might be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We'll wait and see how this shakes down if you obey these commandments or not. He's saying, look, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why you shouldn't do those things. But that's the whole point. Is the moment we put our... Tr- faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and He's not about to leave. He's not going to give in. He's not going to, he's not going to be chased out. And so that's why this person of the Holy Spirit makes us so secure in our relationship with God and in our experience of this salvation. Well, the last experience that we so we've seen the experience of salvation and he just details how we got to salvation by hearing the word of truth the gospel putting our faith in Jesus Christ uh we also see how that is a secure relationship that we experience as we look forward to this inheritance but then the last experience that this inheritance is tied to within this passage is worship it's worship he repeats it again we've we've mentioned this uh quite a bit through the passage because it's a, it's a prominent theme in this passage and, and in other places in Ephesians as well. But it keeps coming back to the same phrase, to the praise of His glory. Remember it said in verse 12, it talked about we who were the first to hope in Christ. Praise God for that. To the praise of His glory. And he says, but then you too. Later, when the Gospel went to the Gentiles, then you guys heard the Word of Truth. And you believed in Jesus Christ. And you know what? Praise God for that. You also are to the same praise and honor and glory that we were from. God came to us first, came to you after. Awesome. In fact, the, after when we get into chapter 2, he's going to go to the unity between those two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. But all of it is to establish, you know what, there's only one logical outcome of these things that God's teaching us about, and that is worship. When we stop and think about all the blessings that God pours out on us and the the adoption that He brought us into and the redemption that we get to experience, the forgiveness of sins, and the inheritance that He has laid laid out before us, if that doesn't make us want to worship, there is something drastically wrong within our hearts. 
And that's what this passage is all about. Remember how this passage starts? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And then, as you work your way down the passage, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, He ends this longest sentence. He begins and ends it the same way. starts out by saying, blessed be God, that's worship. He ends it by saying, to the praise of His glory, which is again, worship. And you know what? That's exactly why we call this service worship. Because as we come and we recognize what we have in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us, how can it result in anything other than worship? Where we exalt His name, where we're excited about what He's done for us, both in what we're experiencing here as we gather together and as we go out and we live our lives in our, in our homes and in our community and in our workplaces and our school, and then also looking forward to what He has for us in that glorious inheritance.